Section 14 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 9, European Statesmen, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. George the Fourth, Part Two. At last good men became aroused at the injustice and wretchedness which filled every corner of the land, and sent up their petitions to Parliament for reform. Not for the mere alleviation of miseries, but for a reform in representation, so that men might be sent as legislators who would take some interest in the condition of the poor and oppressed. Yet even to these petitions the aristocratic commons paid but little heed. The sigh of the mourner was unheard, and the tear of anguish was unnoticed by those who lived in their lordly palaces. What was desperate suffering and agitation for relief they called agrarian discontent and revolutionary excess, to be put down by the most vigorous measures the government could devise. O tempora! O mores! the Roman orator exclaimed in view of social evils which would bear no comparison with those that afflicted a large majority of the human beings who struggled for a miserable existence in the most lauded country in Europe. In their despair might well they exclaim, Who shall deliver us from the body of this death? I often wonder that the people of England were as patient and orderly as they were, under such aggravated misfortunes. In France the oppressed would probably have risen in a burst of frenzy and wrath, and perhaps unseated the monarch on his throne. But the English mobs erected no barricades, and used no other weapons than groans and expostulations. They did not demand rights, but bread. They were not agitators, but sufferers. Promises of relief disarmed them, and they sadly returned to their wretched homes to see no radical improvement in their condition. Their only remedy was patience, and patience without much hope. Nothing could really relieve them but returning prosperity, and that depended more on events which could not be foreseen than on legislation itself. Such was the condition, in general terms, of high and low, rich and poor, in England in the year 1815, and I have now to show what occupied the attention of the government for the next fifteen years during the reign of George the Fourth as regent and as king. But first let us take a brief review of the men prominent in the government. Lord Liverpool was the Prime Minister of England for fifteen years, from 1812, succeeding to Percival upon the latter's assassination, to 1827. He was a man of moderate abilities, but honest and patriotic. This chief merit was in the tact by which he kept together a cabinet of conflicting political sentiments, but he lived in comparatively quiet times when everybody wanted rest and repose and when he had only to combat domestic evils. The Lord Chancellor, Lord Eldon, had been seated on the woolsack from nearly the beginning of the century, and was the keeper of the King's conscience for twenty-five years, enjoying his great office for a longer period than any other Lord Chancellor in English history. He was doubtless a very great lawyer, and a man of remarkable sagacity and insight, but the narrowest and most bigoted of all the great men who controlled the destinies of the nation. He absolutely abhorred any change whatever and any kind of reform. He adhered to what was already established, and because it was established. Therefore he was a good churchman, and a most reliable Tory. The most powerful man in the cabinet at this time, holding the second office in the government, that of foreign secretary, was Lord Castlereagh. No very great scholar or orator or man of business, but an inveterate Tory who played into the hands of all the despots of Europe, and who made captive more powerful minds than his own by the elegance of his manners, the charm of his conversation, and the intensity of his convictions. 
William Pitt never showed greater sagacity than when he bought the services of this gifted aristocrat, for he was then a Whig, and introduced him into Parliament. He was the most prominent minister of the crown until he died, directing foreign affairs with ability, but in the wrong direction. The friend and ally of Metternich, Chateaubriand, Hardenberg, and the monarchs whom they represented. But foremost in genius among the great statesmen of the day was George Canning, who, however, did not reach the summit of his ambition until the latter part of the reign of George the Fourth. But after the death of Castlereagh in 1822, he was the leading spirit of the cabinet, holding the great office of foreign secretary, second in rank and power only to that of the premier. Although a Tory, the follower and disciple of Pitt, it was Canning who gave the first great blow to the narrow and selfish conservatism which marked the government of his day, and entered the first wedge which was to split the Tory ranks and inaugurate reform. For this he acquired the greatest popularity that any statesman in England ever enjoyed, if we accept Fox and Pitt, and at the same time incurred the bitterest wrath which the Metternichs of the world have ever cherished toward the benefactors of mankind. Canning was born in London, in the year 1770, in comparatively humble life, his father being a dissipated and broken-down barrister, and his mother compelled by poverty to go upon the stage. But he had a wealthy relative who took care of his education. In 1788 he entered Christ Church College, where he won the prize for the best Latin poem that Oxford had ever produced. After he had graduated with distinguished honors, he entered as a law student at Lincoln's Inn, but before he wore the gown of a barrister, Pitt had sought him out, as he had Castlereagh, having heard of his talents in debating societies. Pitt secured him a seat in Parliament, and Canning made his first speech on the 31st of January, 1794. The aid which he brought to the ministry secured his rapid advancement. In a year after his maiden speech, he was made Under-Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs at the age of twenty-five. On the death of Pitt in 1806, when the Whigs for a short period came into power, Canning was the recognized leader of the opposition, and in 1807, when the Tories returned to power, he became Foreign Secretary in the Ministry of the Duke of Portland, of which Mr. Percival was the leading member. It was then that Canning seized the Danish fleet at Copenhagen, giving as his excuse for this bold and high-handed measure that Napoleon would have taken it if he had not. It was through his influence and that of Lord Castlereagh that Sir Arthur Wellesley, afterward the Duke of Wellington, was sent to Spain to conduct the Peninsular War. On the retirement of the Duke of Portland as head of the government in 1809, Mr. Percival became minister, an event soon followed by the insanity of George III and the entrance of Robert Peel into the House of Commons. In 1812 Mr. Percival was assassinated, and the long ministry of Lord Liverpool began, supported by all the eloquence and influence of Canning, between whom and his chief a close friendship had existed since their college days. The foreign secretaryship was offered to Canning, but he, being comparatively poor, preferred the Lisbon embassy on the large salary of fourteen thousand pounds. In eighteen fourteen he became president of the Board of Control and remained in that office until he was appointed Governor-General of India. On the death of Castlereagh, 1822, by his own hand, Canning resumed the post of foreign secretary and from that time was the master spirit of the government, leader of the House of Commons, the most powerful orator of his day, and the most popular man in England. He had now become more liberal, showing a sympathy with reform, acknowledging the independence of the South American colonies, and virtually breaking up the Holy Alliance by his disapprobation of the policy of the Congress of Vienna, which aimed at the total overthrow of liberty in Europe, and which, 
under the guidance of Metternich and with the support of Castlereagh, had already given Norway to Sweden, the Duchy of Genoa to Sardinia, restored the Pope to his ancient possessions, and made Italy what it was before the French Revolution. The most mischievous thing which the Holy Alliance had in view was interference in the internal affairs of all the continental states under the guise of religion. England, under the leadership of Castlereagh, would have upheld this foreign interference of Russia, Prussia, and Austria, but Canning withdrew England from this intervention, a great service to his country and to civilization. In fact, the great principle of his political life was non-intervention in the internal affairs of other nations. Hence he refused to join the great powers in reseating the King of Spain on his throne, from which that monarch had been temporarily ejected by a popular insurrection. But for him the great powers might have united with Spain to recover her lost possessions in South America. To him the peace of the world at that critical period was mainly owing. In one of his most famous speeches he closed with the oft-quoted sentence, I called the new world into existence to redress the balance of the old. Canning like Peel, and like Gladstone in our own time, grew more and more liberal as he advanced in years, in experience and in power, although he never left the Tory ranks. His commercial policy was identical with that of his friend Huskisson, which was that commerce flourished best when wholly unfettered by restrictions. He held that protection, in the abstract, was unsound and unjust, and thus he opened the way for free trade, a great boon which Sir Robert Peel gave to the nation under the teachings of Cobden. He was also in favor of Catholic emancipation and the repeal of the Test Act, which the Duke of Wellington was compelled against his will, ultimately, to give to the nation. At the head of all this array of brilliant statesmen stood the King, or in this case the Regent, who was a man of very different character from most of the ministers who served him. It was in January 1811 that the Prince of Wales became Regent in consequence of the insanity of his father George III. It was during the Peninsular War when Wellington, then Sir Arthur Wellesley, was wearing out the French in Spain. But the reign of this prince as regent is barren of great political movements. There is scarcely anything to record but riots and discontent among the lower classes in the incendiary speeches and writings of demagogues. Measures of relief were proposed in Parliament, also for parliamentary reform and the removal of Catholic disabilities, but they were all alike opposed by the Tory government and came to nothing. Four years after the beginning of the Regency saw the overthrow of Napoleon, and the nation was so wearied of war and all great political excitement that it had sunk into inglorious repose. It was the period of reaction, of ultra-conservatism, and hatred of progressive and revolutionary ideas, when such men as Cobbett and Hunt, Henry, were persecuted, fined, and imprisoned for their ideas. Cobbett, the most popular writer of the day, was forced to fly to America. Government was utterly intolerant of all political agitation, which was chiefly confined to men without social position. But of all the magnates who were opposed to reform, the Prince Regent was the most obstinate. He was wholly devoted to pleasure. His court at the Carlton Palace was famous for the assemblage of wits and beauties and dandies, reminding us of the Epicureanism which marked Versailles during the reign of Louis the Fifteenth. It was the most scandalous period in England since the time of Charles the Second. The life of the regent was a perpetual scandal, especially in his heartless treatment of women and the disgraceful revels in which he indulged. The companions of the prince were mostly dissipated and inuied courtiers, as impersonated in that incarnation of dandyism who went by the name of Beau Brummel, a contemptible character who yet, it seems, was the leader of fashion, especially in dress, of which the prince himself was inordinately fond. 
this boon companion of royalty required two different artists to make his gloves and he went home after the opera to change his cravat for succeeding parties his impertinence and audacity exceeded anything ever recorded of men of fashion as when he requested his royal master to ring the bell nothing is more pitiable than his miserable end deserted by all his friends a helpless idiot in a lunatic asylum having exhausted all his means lord yarmouth afterward the marquis of hertford infamous for his debaucheries and extravagance was another of the prince's companions in folly and drunkenness so was lord fife who expended eighty thousand pounds on a dancer and a host of others who had however that kind of wit which would set the table on a roar but all gamblers drunkards and sensualists who gloried in the ruin of those women whom they had made victims of their pleasures but i passed by the revelries and follies of the first gentleman in the realm as he was called to allude to one event which has historical importance and which occupied the attention of the whole country and that was the persecution of his wife who was also his cousin caroline amelia elizabeth daughter of the duke of brunswick he drove her from the nuptial bed and from his palace he sought also to get a divorce which failed by reason of the transcendent talents and eloquence of brougham and denham eminent lawyers whom she employed in her defence and which brought them out prominently before the eyes of the nation for the great career of brougham especially began with the trial of caroline of brunswick the unhappy woman whom the prince of wales married to get relief from his peculiar necessities and whom he insulted as soon as he saw her although she was a princess of considerable accomplishments and as amiable as she was beneficent the only palliation of his infamous treatment of this woman was that he never loved her and was even disgusted with her no sooner was the marriage solemnized than she was treated on every occasion with studied contumely and scarcely had she recovered from illness incident to the birth of the princess charlotte when the first gentleman of the age was pleased to intimate that it suited his disposition that they should hereafter live apart never allowed to be crowned as queen driven from the shelter of her husband's roof surrounded with spies accused of crimes of which there was no proof even excluded from the public prayers and finally forced into exile she sank under her accumulated wrongs and was carried off by a fatal illness at the age of fifty-three on the death of the old king in eighteen twenty the prince of wales became george the fourth after having been regent for nine years as he was inflexibly opposed to all reforms no great measures had been carried through parliament except from urgent necessity and fear of revolution but the state was being prepared for reforms in the next reign in eighteen twenty the agitation which finally ended in the reform bill set in with great earnestness henry brougham had become a great power in the house of commons and poured out the vials of his wrath on the tory government lord john russell busily employed himself in forging the weapons by which he more than any other man afterward broke the power of the tories the voice of wilberforce was also heard in demanding the abolition of negro slavery romilly was advocating a reform in criminal law macaulay was making those brilliant speeches which would have elevated him to the highest rank among debaters had he not cherished other ambitions the only things which stand out as memorable and of political importance in this reign were a change in the foreign policy of england the discontents and agitations of the people the removal of catholic disabilities and the repeal of the test acts on the first i shall not dwell since i have already alluded to it as the great work of canning as foreign minister he divorced england from the holy alliance and insisted on maintaining non-intervention in the internal affairs of other nations and a peace policy which raised his country to the highest pinnacle of power she ever attained and brought about a development of wealth and industry entirely unprecedented 
had he lived he would have carried out those reforms that later were the glory of lord john russell and sir robert peel for he was emancipated from the ideas which made the tories obnoxious his spirit was liberal and progressive and hence he incurred bitter hostilities the government however could not be carried on without him and the king was forced unwillingly to accept him as minister his magnificent services as foreign secretary had mollified the hostilities of george the fourth who became anxious to retain him in power at the head of the foreign department after the retirement of lord liverpool but canning felt that the premiership was his due and would accept nothing short of it and the king was forced to give it to him in spite of the howl of the tory leaders he enjoyed that dignity however but two months being worn out with labors and embittered by the hostilities of his political enemies who hounded him to death with the most cruel and unrelenting hatred his sensitive and proud nature could not stand before such unjust attacks and savage calumnies he rapidly sank in the prime of his life and in the height of his fame canning's death in eighteen twenty seven was a marked event in the reign of george the fourth it filled england with mourning and never was grief for a departed statesman more sincere and profound he was buried with great pomp in westminster abbey the sculptor chantry was entrusted with the execution of his statue a memorial which he did not need for his fame is imperishable the day after the funeral his wife was made a peeress an annuity was granted to his sons and every honor that it was possible for a grateful nation to bestow was lavished on his memory canning left only twenty thousand pounds a less sum than he had received from his wife upon his marriage his domestic life was singularly happy he was also happy in the brilliant promises of his sons one of whom became the governor-general of india and was created a peer for his services his only daughter married the marquis of clanricard his children thus entered the ranks of the nobility a distinction which he himself did not covet it was his chief ambition to rule the nation through the house of commons some authorities have regarded canning as the greatest of english parliamentary orators but his speeches to me are disappointing although elaborate argumentative logical and full of fancy and wit they were too rhetorical to suit the taste of lord brougham rhetorical exhibitions however brilliant are not those which posterity most highly value and lose their charm when the occasions which produce them have passed away canning's presence was commanding and dignified his articulation delicate and precise his voice clear and musical while the curl of his lip and the glance of his eye would silence almost any antagonist in cabinet meetings he was habitually silent having already made up his mind he could not gracefully bear contradiction and made many enemies by his pride and sarcasm in private life he was courteous and gentlemanly fond of society but fonder of domestic life pure in his moral character devoted to his family especially to his mother whom he treated with extraordinary deference and affection end of section fourteen